My soul keeps thy testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. This is a love song about Christ, who's the living word and thus the written word. And it describes the beauty and the glory that is ours, the treasure that is ours in God's word. It's more precious to us than, than what a princess could ever give us. It's, it, is, it is more valuable or it would cause greater rejoicing than we might have if we found a million dollars lying in the street. Um, that's what you've got in this word, brothers and sisters. Let's therefore cling to it, draw near to it, draw near to God and a fellowship with him thereby. Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah one more time. Zechariah chapter um, 12 will be the text that we look at. In your bulletin is an outline. I encourage you to locate that. Follow along and take notes. And uh, together, let's fellowship around this portion of God's word. It's the last time I'm going to fellowship with you around Zechariah. We are now transitioning into Malachi, so in your own personal study. Um, I hope you've already done it. Maybe not, but if you haven't, start pulling out your commentaries or go online, get the online uh, commentaries, read Malachi, and start studying it together, and and we'll dive uh, into Malachi after Zechariah. But for today, we're at Zechariah 12, 1 through 13, 1. The verse, versifications in the Bible are not inspired. And uh, really, verse 1 be, uh, rests with chapter 12 of, of um, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter uh, 13. So with that, let's please stand out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of your king, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make a Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the, the peoples. All who lift it up will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every home with every horse with a bewilderment, and his rider with madness. And I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord, the Lord of hosts, their God. And that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot amongst pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord will also save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may may not be magnified above Judah. And that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, And they will mourn for him 
As one mourns for, for an only son, they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadraman in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of, of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the, of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. And that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. Let's father reading of God's word. Let's pray together. God, what a privilege that you've given us this moment to come here and to fellowship with you around your word as it is opened, and as you now have called us to come and fellowship around this portion. Lord, feed us richly. Open our eyes and enable us, O Lord, to sup, but young and old, Give us grace to be responsive to this, your, your word, with praise and devotion and enjoyment of you. God, be exalted. Give me grace to preach this, your word, with fidelity and clarity. And grant your people grace to trust you, that our faith would, be, would not rest upon the wisdom of men, but on your power, your spirit, by and with your word. Lord, we entrust this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Christ had much to say in Scripture, in his earthly ministry, still does, obviously, in Scripture, um, about tribulation. In fact, the most well-known passage on Christ's lips about tribulation is John 16, where we read, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Now, you know that word. It's philipsis. It's the word used in winemaking for the pressure necessary to burst a grape. So the idea behind in the world you have a tribulation is in the world you are going to have massive pressure in your life. This is not a promise. This is an observation. This is a statement of truth, a statement of fact. In the world, as Christians, we're going to have tribulation. This fallen world is um, hostile to the life that God originally created us uh, to live. And thus, with this fallen world and our fallen uh, capacities, our bodies and minds decay, our work is cursed, the world in which we live is, is, is very stingy, it's by the sweat of the brow that will come forth fruit. And because of this, brothers and sisters, life in this world is filled with pressure, with weight, with philipsis with tribulation. And that's all people. Now, that's bad news, but it gets even worse. And the worst news is, if you're a Christian, not only will you have philipsis and pressure in your life, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be in the crosshairs of Satan and the world to persecute you. Jesus Christ says in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Paul, referencing that very same truth said in 2 Timothy 3, you know it, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Picking that same theme up, Christ said to his disciples, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you 
to think that he is offering service to God. So many are going to persecute us thinking that they're serving God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Brothers and sisters, not only is Philipsis a part of our living, but get this, so is persecution. It's that, it is, it's, it's that latter reality that Zechariah chapter 12 is addressing with regards to God's people. Recall, the day it was 520 when Zechariah was written. Now it's later than that. The temple's been built. But in 520, God's people had been in, back in Palestine for about 18 years. They were the Green Beret Christians who actually returned when Cyrus gave the order. And, and they were there, and they're supposed to rebuild that temple, and they didn't. They shrunk back. And then all of a sudden, famine came, and, and they were in rebellion against God. So God raised up Haggai, a prophet, to preach to them, to get them going, to rebuild that uh, a temple. And they did. And then he raised up Zechariah about the same time to come and to encourage God's persecuted people, because you recall, as they were building that temple, the surrounding Gentiles were attacking them. The world was seemed to be against them. They were the people who loved God enough to come back, and the reward they got for it, evidently, was trial and difficulty and persecution and famine and hardship. And so God sent Zechariah to minister to the souls of God's people. Haggai to get them physically working, but Zechariah to minister to their souls. And the first six chapters we saw contain eight visions directed to the heart of God's people to encourage them in this state of sin and misery. That's why I love Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I think in the Old Testament, they're the closest books to our current existence, our current um, experience. The theocracy's gone. They're just a religious nation, just like us but yet they're living in a world of, of hostility. And so God comes in Zechariah and gives these eight great visions. Then in seven and eight, recall, he gives us the crux interpretum. It's the center of this book, and it's the center of what God would have their Christian life not to be or, or be. And that is, they were not to be a people who lived to placate God. Those days are over. They're struggling with, 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 with difficulty, and their, their gut response was to placate God. Read the Bible more, do more offerings, do these things so maybe God will, will relent. And Zechariah comes, God comes to Zechariah 7 and 8 says, get rid of that mentality. No, brothers and sisters, seek my face. Seek me. I am your reward. You don't, if, if, if I were your reward, if you would enjoy me, chapters 1 through 6, the famine would seem as nothing. The persecutions would seem as nothing because you've got God. 7 and 8. Then with that, 9 through 14, the last six chapters, those are the prophecies. That's the oracle section. That's the prophetic section of Zechariah. And we saw that it revolves around two Prophetic oracles. Chapter um, 9, we saw the beginning of it, revolves around the Gentile nation's attack upon God's people and the people of God's response. Notice 9 verse 1, it says, And the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. So God's oracle primarily was against the Gentiles, and in the process, he ministered in this first uh, uh, um, a vision or this first oracle to God's people. Well, now it's switched. The emphasis has switched. In ours, if you go to 12, where we're supposed to be, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Now, the oracle is dealing with God's people in the face of persecution. 
So the focus of this now is now intensifying about the people of God and their response to the persecution that they're going through. This is God's divine answer to all the people of God saying, God, why is it so hard? Why are, you, why are these people attacking us? Why don't you stop it? This is God's answer. Now with this, one of the characteristics of Zechariah I want to point, your, point out to you is you know Hebrews more inclined to show it than say it. The Old Testament Hebrew. And Zechariah is a beautiful picture of that. As we progress in this book, not only do we progress with message after message about the end times and, and what life is going to be like and the promise of the, of the Messiah, you know, etc. But the intensity of that message increases. Our last section in that day is referenced 16 times. So the idea from, from 12 through 14 is the intensification is growing. And God wants his people, as they read the book from beginning to end, to feel that intensification, to feel what you and I feel now. As we get closer and closer to Christ, that intensification of persecution, of difficulty, of the signs of the time. Joyce Baldwin added to that a glance at the outline of this section, which was uh, 9 through 14 in her commentary, will show that the themes dealt with in chapters 9 through 11 recur in 12 through 14, but with increasing intensity as they progress towards that day. So if you were to read it through all the way, one sitting, and if you were looking for it, you'd get that sense of intensification. God wants us uh, to see, to, to sit on the edge of our seats. That's the idea. Don't sit back and listen. Sit up. Receive this word from, from God. Having said that, the theme of chapter 12 through 13.1 is persecution. And thus I've titled this this morning, An Exposé of Persecution. Notice with me the reality of persecution, verses 1 through 2. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirits of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that, come, that causes reeling to all peoples around. And when, the, and when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. This passage is talking about Jerusalem being the object of the hatred of non-believers. The focus of this is that Jerusalem is going to be in the crosshairs and the object and the brunt of attack. Notice with me verse 3b. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against Jerusalem. That's the uh, context. Skip down to verse 9. It will come about in that day I was set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So the, the reality is God is telling his people, you're going through difficulty. I understand that. But the future holds much more difficulty for Jerusalem, much more difficulty for my, my people. So the reality is, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer, you will be persecuted. Now, the struggle in, in, in this chapter is, do we take Jerusalem literally, or do we take it figuratively as it is used in Scripture? Do we take it literally? For those who believe this is a literal description there's a problem with that view. And the problem is, one, this has never happened. So historically, this is a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And secondly, if they insist on a literal interpretation, then because it's yet to be fulfilled at this point in, in juncture, it therefore means that in the future, if this is literally to be uh, fulfilled as it's described here, that verse 4 
You're, you're going to have, in that day, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and rider with madness. In other words, you're going to have Jerusalem surrounded by cavalrymen. Not tanks, not warfare, not weapons, not, not what a lot of the dispensations say are going to happen. No, that battle will be fought, not with tanks and bullets, but men on horses charging against Jerusalem. So for that reason, Reformed scholars say, good, good night. That, that, this is not literal. This is figurative. And, and, and being figurative, it's not that we're pulling it out of the air. Scripture uses Jerusalem in a variety of different ways. Listen to Galatians 4.25. Paul uses the term Jerusalem in two different ways in, in one verse. Now, this is Hagar in Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. It means by that the present religion of Judaism. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. That's not about the body of Christ. The, uh, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So Jerusalem clearly in Scripture can be used not just of a literal city, but the people of God. You see it in Hebrews chapter 12 as well, speaking of the nature of salvation, he wrote, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. When you became a Christian, you came to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, etc., etc., in fact, Jerusalem is used that way in Zephaniah or Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2, we saw it back then when we looked at that. In Zechariah chapter 8, Jerusalem is not used literally, it's used figuratively. So we conclude from this that, brothers and sisters, this passage is prophesying and telling us that in the future from 5, probably this is beyond 518, beyond the last oracle um, or, or the last uh, you know, 7 and 8. So we're probably well beyond the, the temples now made, is now built. And God's people are being told the future does not look good for my people when it comes to persecution. They will be the brunt and the focus. They're in the crosshairs of the non-believers and Satan's attack upon my people. Revelation 12 makes it very clear. When Satan couldn't get to Christ, he turned his focus against the, the body of Jesus Christ. The child, the uh, a woman who gave birth to the Messiah, the people of God. And his focus now is to attack and destroy and decimate God's people. Brothers and sisters, that's the reality. But notice with me verse 1 and the incredible promise that God prefaces this, this bad news. Notice with, with me verse 1a, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Let me ask you something, which is more difficult, creation or maintenance? Is it harder to create something or to, or to sustain it? Would it be harder to build a home or sustain that, that home. It'd be much easier to sustain. We'd all say that. Yeah. Creation is a lot more difficult. That's why it stresses this here. Brothers and sisters, if God perfectly created this world, you can be sure he will perfectly maintain it. He will perfectly sustain it. So he comes and says, Christian, brothers and sisters, bad news, but get this. I'm on the throne. And I'm a good God. The whole context I'm a good God who has saved you and redeemed you. So don't fear. Don't be burdened by these temptations and these trials, not uh, temptations, by this uh, persecution. Don't fear it. It's going to come. It's inevitable. But know this. I am on the throne and being on the throne, I hold you in my hand. Incredible. Incredible. 
So brothers and sisters, the reality of persecution, God holds us in his hand. And that is the confidence that God gives his people. Psalm 2.1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. Let us tear off his, their uh, fetters and cast their, their cords away. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's that reality that nothing can occur in this world that is not according to God's sovereign will. And our God is good. And therefore, his sovereign will for you can only end in his glory and your benefit. Romans 8.28. And it's because of that very purpose we read already in Acts chapter 4. The very thing that encouraged God's people was his creative glory. And notice where it led them. I'm going to read it quickly. They lift up their voices O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by thy Holy Spirit, through the mouth of thy father David, thy servant, did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's divine being th- uh, futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Get this to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. They began with creation because that naturally leads to predestination and God's sovereign providence over this world. And so for them, they were beaten, persecuted, ordered to not preach in Christ's name at the pain of death. And their response was, God, you ordain this, grant us boldness. And that's the idea of Zechariah 12, the very overflow of it. Brothers and sisters, persecution is inevitable. It's going to come. It's prophesied against the people of God, Jerusalem, the people of God. But you've got to realize God is on the throne and he reigns. That being said, notice with me then the curse involved in persecution, verses 2 through 9. The curse involved. And we're talking here not for God's people, but for the person who would persecute. Notice with me verse 2. Behold, you're never going to believe this. This is something that is going to blow your mind. That's the idea behind that word in Hebrew, behold. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. This is the first of four metaphors that God uses in 2 through 9 to describe what's going to happen to the persecutor if they attack God's people. Acts chapter 9, you recall verse 4, when Saul was attacking God's people, who ultimately was he attacking? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Brothers and sisters, when the non-believer attacks Christ, when they attack you, they're attacking Christ. And when they attack you, curse follows upon them. A horrible curse. And that's what's amazing about persecution. Think about it for one moment. There is nothing in your life that persecution can take. There's nothing in your life of substance that persecution can take, can can rob you of. Nothing. Well, great. They can take my life. (laughs) No, they can't. Right? To, To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. They can't take your life. Well, they can take my money. They can't take your money. You realize in, in heaven, we're, we're, we're walking on pitch and tar called gold. Okay, I mean, think about that. He made him who was, 
who is rich to be poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. I'm not saying on this side of the grave, but they can't rob you ultimately of, 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 of wealth, of health, of future, of life, of your family, of anyone dear. Persecution can't touch you and me. On the outside. That's why we fear not him who can destroy the body, but him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So persecution can't touch us. But you know what persecution does to a non-believer? Behold, you're never going to believe this. Four metaphors. Number one, behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling. Now, to understand this this metaphor, you got to go to Isaiah chapter 51 because it's a quote of that verse. Isaiah 51, 17, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, that's the cup, if they attack you, they get in response and as a repayment the cup of God's almighty wrath against them. And then it goes on. The chalice of reeling, the word for reeling means shaking violently. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. When the non-believer attacks the, the child of God or the church, the consequence ultimately in their life is the wrath of Almighty God and eternity quaking before God's almighty wrath. Now, it may not be in this life. It could be in this life in in the sense of of reeling and and shaking, suffering under God's divine uh, anger. It's possible in this life, but ultimately we know what's in mind here. Notice the second metaphor, verse 3. It will come about in that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. For all the peoples, all who lift it will be severely injured. Now, brothers and sisters, where are we in redemptive history? They just built the temple. Remember the, some of the stones and that boulders in the temple building? God's people had to move those. I would dare say, you, you've, I, I, I saw a movie once, and I'm not sure if it's true, but it, it, it said, you know how you can identify a, uh, um, a terrorist who makes bombs, Right? Look at his fingers, right? He only has three, right? He'll be like this. And it's not a joke. It's, it's they blow themselves up. They always have mistakes. I can't, I'm thinking of that. I can't imagine this generation didn't have a whole bunch of men without fingers, crushed toes, broken backs, literally bad backs. You can just imagine the people of God having built, rebuilt that temple and the wear and tear it would have had on their bodies. And he says, brothers and sisters, you know what it did to you physically? It ripped you apart. When God's people attack you, you are the boulders. You are the stones that will crush and break their backs. Incredible. That's, behold, that's shocking. We think when they're attacking us, they're having fun. Look how easy of a life that they've got. They're having fun, and we're suffering. Brothers and sisters, they are reaping in themselves. Think back to Zechariah. What we saw in Zechariah 3, 20 through 21 and the, and, the, and the metaphor of the tightening noose around the non-believer. Right now, there is a noose being tightened around their neck. Ever slowly, but it's being tightened, brothers and sisters. When you see the non-believer attacking, don't get angry. Pity them. Pray for them. A noose is being tightened around their neck, and you're seeing it here. When they attack you, they are attacking themselves. The consequence of attacking Christ and his body is to bear the burden in their own life. Notice the, four, the third metaphor, verse 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. 
I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. The idea here is a cavalry charge, and the cavalry charge takes place. The horses, well, the, the text says they are bewildered, right? Which means they're panicked. They don't do what they're called to, uh, to do. And then the second one is, is the riders are struck with madness. And the idea behind that, that speaks of the blindness of depravity, which ends up longing most for that which will harm it most. That's the, that's the madness. Non-believers are mad. They long for that which will hurt them most. Sin makes us mad. Man, I want that sin. It, it makes us long for that which will hurt us most. And God says that's, what, that's a third thing that's going to happen. They attack my people. It's just another description of their plunge into depravity, whereby they reap into their own person, their minds, their bodies, the due consequence of their sin. And then lastly, verse 6. And that day I will make the clans of Judah a fire pot, among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among slaves. You know, in that day, they didn't have a Bic lighter. They didn't have matches either. So the way they lit a stove, or lit a stove, lit their, their, what they cooked on, was they had fire pots. And a fire pot was basically a vessel with holes in it so it could breathe. That You, you would take the coals of your fire, stick them in, and they would, they would sort of just smolder, but not quickly because there's, there's not a lot of oxygen, but enough to keep it going. So when you need to light the fire that, you know, the following night, you take those coals, put on something that's really uh, combustible, and what do you got? You got another thing. That's, that's, that was their equivalent of a big uh, lighter. Well, if you took that and drug that around because it had holes, it would spark. If you drug that in a dry field during harvest, if you drug that against sheath, what would happen? Well, you'd have what you had with, with Samson when he tied the torch against the, the, the fox's tail in Judges 15, and the entire fields would, would just burn up, ignite. Brothers and sisters, this, this, there's this picture. Behold, when they attack you, their lives are going to ignite in flames. If not on this side of the grave, on the next. Brothers and sisters, such is the case in the lives of those who actively attack God's people. And yet, with all this attack, as I said earlier, notice with me, 8 9. In contrast, behold, this is what happens to the persecutor. Zechariah 12, verse 8 through 9. And that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Far from being scathed or, 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 or wounded or, um, what would you say, uh, crippled by these attacks, God's going to defend them. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. The house of David will be like God, like, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I was set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, what a contrast. Don't miss it. The, the uh, uh, curse involved when the non-believer persecutes you. You and I can get personal about it and go, man... I just wish those people like Job, right? Job, you know, don't long for the night when people die. That's what God tells Job. That would be evil, right? If we can be found doing that, Lord, I just wish, just wish that that person did those horrible things. You'd, you would, you'd bring them to hell now. You're not saying that. They're not thinking that. But if you're asking for their death, that's what you're asking for. Boy, let a passage like this give you a sense of compassion and humility and realize that that noose of chapter 2 is indeed tightening and it's tangible. And these people who are attacking you, someday are going to pay for it. Don't be burdened by the uh, impact of their persecution. Be burdened by the result of their persecution in their lives. 
So one, you're going to be persecuted, brothers and sisters. You can't leave this earth without it. You're in the crosshairs. And being in the the, uh, crosshairs, you're going to at times receive blows from Satan, demons, his followers. But brothers and sisters, let us not uh, respond with anger and frustration and curses and, and, you know, in the flesh like Paul. God will strike you, you whitewashed uh, tomb, right? Let's not respond like that. But rather, let's realize what happens when we are attacked and have compassion and prayer. That being said, God describes the protection he gives us. Let's look at that protection. Backside of your sheet. Notice the blessings that come from persecution. Zechariah 12, 10 through 13, 1. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they may look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will keep, weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The first two things happen. God uses persecution in the life of God's people to do two things. The first one is, is to pour out his spirit. Now get this. The context is persecution. When you and I go through persecution, that's when the spirit of God is poured out on us. You say, you mean only then? No, of course not. The Spirit of God is poured out on us, obviously, you know, all times. But there, at those times of woe and difficulty, you are most near God. Right? That's where the Spirit of God pour, is poured out upon us. Now understand, this ultimately, we know, has fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost. Because Peter quotes the pouring out of the Spirit um, in reference to Pentecost. And so we know ultimately this has in mind Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. Well, what did the Spirit's pouring out do at Pentecost? Two things. It's saved, sanctified. The Spirit of God, he's saved or he's sanctified, which is salvation as well, a different, form, a different facet of it, right? He justified and he sanctifies. That's what happened at Pentecost And so when we read of the outpouring of the Spirit of God, God's saying, brothers and sisters, when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, when you're struggling with the trials and difficulties of persecution, the pressures of persecution, understand that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you in a way, and not that he's more present than he was before. No, the idea is that he's blessing you more. The work of the Spirit of God is more active in your life at those moments either to to save an individual from their sin or to grow them in grace. And that's the emphasis of of, of this passage before us, to grow them in grace. Notice the two consequences of the outpouring of the Spirit. So two things he does. It pours out a Spirit and, uh, and avails us to the fountain. The first one is pouring out a spirit. There's two consequences. Notice it. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and of supplication. That's the first one. Grace. Grace is God's divine enabling. Grace is need enables us to be saved. It opens our eyes to the saving need of Jesus Christ. Grace gives us the faith to believe. Grace then gives us the grace to follow God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. But I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God through me. So brothers and sisters, grace is God's enabling whereby he enables us to be what God wants us to be. And here, it's very specific what's the end. Notice, the spirit of grace and epexegetical. 
I've defined that b before. Ep, exegetical, copula, is a and, also, but, even, which explains, the second explains the first, gives further definition. So he's going to pour upon them grace, that is, supplication. You know the, what the root of supplication is? Grace. The root word in supplication, or part of the, what makes up the word supplication in the Hebrew, is the root grace. So the idea behind supplication in scripture is a longing for the grace of God. It's an appealing to God. God, strengthen me, help me, grow me, grace me, that I might love you and know you in the flames of affliction. Brothers and sisters, that's the idea here. When you and I are going through, through, through persecution, the Spirit of God is poured out upon us, and he prompts us thus to long for God to grace us, to come near to us, to, to draw near to us. I love this. The Spirit doesn't come and make us long for our bank account more. He doesn't come and long for our health more. I'm being uh, persecuted. Oh, man, you just messed up my jog. No, when you're persecuted, what does the heart say? When you go through the trials and difficulties of life, what's the, what's the cry of the Christian heart? God, this trial and persecution has demonstrated to, the, to me again that the things I spend my life to save are so worthless. Right? Think of the poem, I never knew until one day by the grave how, how vain are the things we spend our lives to save. Right? That's what persecution does. It's the leveler. It enables us to see the world as God sees it. And thus we see that the only benefit we have, the only thing of substance in life, is Christ. Fellowshipping with him, glorifying him, loving him. That's what we're after. And that's what the Spirit of God does in persecution. He pours out upon us the spirit of grace, which results in a prayer of of for grace secondly so that this is what happens when you and i long for christ so that we we will look on christ on god whom they have pierced okay they will look upon me the I, that's a faith act in the hebrew it's in it's a causative they will be caused to place their gaze upon me whom whom they have pierced that's the cross acts tells us that that's the cross. That's Jesus Christ. They're going to gaze upon me whom they've pierced, which is, which, mark that, because that's going to bear in one moment here. Whom they've pierced. How they pierce them? Through their sin. Okay? They're going to look upon me whom they've pierced, and they will then mourn. They will grieve for him or on account of him. That grieving, brothers and sisters, has two directions. The first direction is they're going to see the wounds of Christ and the burden of Christ, whom they've wounded because of their sins. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to mourn because of their sin. But then secondly, because of their sin, that raises their gaze to Jesus Christ, and they're going to mourn because their sin killed Jesus. So it's this beautiful picture that God draws near to us in the flame of affliction, and he draws our gaze from the things of this life back to him, where we say, God, give me you. Give me more of you. I want you, Lord. And then in that process, God brings to us, as we gaze upon the beauty of Christ, marred by our sin, we then grieve over our sin. 
We become people who are characterized by brokenness, repentance. Paul says, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Our mourning is a repentant mourning, a turning mourning. Most importantly, a mourning which turns from self-autonomy, right? Self as the measurement of life. God, if you do things bad against me, then you're bad because I am what's, I'm what's all that, that matter. Repent is genuine re, uh, repentance. We turn from the sin of self, self-love, self-God, self-deity, to say God is my God. And then, brothers and sisters, Matthew 5 pictures it beautifully. We, we are, because of our poverty of spirit, we realize we have nothing in our re- repentance. We mourn and we long for Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, notice it's a deep mourning. This isn't just this passing, yeah, yeah, right, I, I killed Jesus, whatever, pass the plate or something, right? This is deep. Notice it says three different pictures for an only son. Now, I don't have time. You can think of many examples in your life, I would guess, or at least one example if you're old enough, where you've interacted with someone who lost their only son. What's the mourning like there? Or their firstborn son. I remember sharing the gospel once to this gal. and We, we knocked on the door and we said we'd, we'd love to share, of, you know, there was more involved, but, it, uh, but in essence, we'd like to come in and share the gospel. And uh, we didn't say it like that, but that in essence, okay. So she let us in, and she said, before I listen to you share about Jesus, you've got to answer me one, one, one question, what? And he started crying, why did God take my only son? And I was the trainee. I'm like, Ooh. Uh, but I was the one in charge, so I, I did respond to her. Um, as best as this little feeble guy could. But boy, she was grieved. But then he goes beyond that. Notice verse 11. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of, of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. Hadadrimon, brothers and sisters, was a city. It's believed to be a city in the, a, a small town southeast of Megiddo. It's the place where Josiah was killed. Remember he fought against Necho, this godly, godly king? During Jeremiah's reign, 622, he, was, he started the revival. I mean, this great king, he went out to stop Necho, and God took this righteous man from, from, the, from the bitterness that would follow. Isaiah 57. Okay, He took them from the suffering that was going to come. And from that point on, according to 1 Chronicles 28, or what is it, First, uh, 2 Chronicles, um, if I can find it in my verse here, 33, uh, 35, 25 through 25, uh, 24 through 25, it began a year ceremony or, or a, a once a year ceremony that was observed for 100 plus years afterwards. Where God's people, it was the only formal ceremony in the religious calendar of Judaism that was all about mourning. David Thomas wasn't mourning. Passover wasn't mourning. Eventually, that celebration. This was the only celebration or, or only ceremony that was yearly observed where the entire people of God were to mourn. And it's saying, brothers and sisters, that's the mourning. And then that's the depth of it. Would you notice the breadth? He goes on, verses 12 through 14. I won't read all that. The idea behind that is everyone's touched by it. Everyone. And why does it picture, pull out the women? Because in that day, women grieve separate from men. Okay, so that's why I keep saying, it's, you know, you know uh, the Levites are going to grieve, and their wives are going to grieve, and, and the so-and-sos are going to grieve, and their wives are going to grieve. It's because they grieved in separate places. The idea is, though, it's thorough. This, the, the depth is to the core of one's being. 
the breadth, everyone's going to be involved. We're talking about corporate persecution. The body of Christ, when persecution, brothers and sisters, if we should be so blessed to live in a land that persecutes us directly, I guarantee you the people who gather for worship will mean it. And everyone will be touched. Everyone will long for Jesus Christ. Everyone will be broken. Everyone will have that passion to know and love Jesus Christ. Right? That's the idea here. All right, that's the first consequence of of persecution. God does this glorious work. He draws us to himself. Secondly, notice 13.1, And that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for the sin and for iniquity. Real quickly here. This is going right back to Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, just like 7 and 8 did. Jeremiah 2, the broken cisterns and the the bubbling brook, right? In that day, most people drank water from a, a cistern. And the cisterns were hollowed out holes in the ground where rainwater fell into. And bugs went in and snakes went in and all kinds of creatures went in. The water was tepid and oftentimes bad. And if you drank it, you could get sick. That's why the primary drink, the drink, the, the water in Jerusalem in Christ's day, and in this day, was wine. They didn't drink water that, uh, that much. It was wine, right? Because the water was so bad. Well, God says, my people committed two errors, evils. They have forsaken me, the bubbling brook. Can you imagine in that day having a bubbling brook that just flowed from the ground, fresh, cool water, clean, no disease, no vermin, nothing, drink it. Ah, God's people have said, no, I don't want that, God. I'd rather have my own cistern of water, a broken cistern that even doesn't even hold water. What does that look like? What's he talking about there? He's talking about there, brothers and sisters, is that we forsake the very first part of this, the morning seeking Christ. We forsake Christ. For the pleasures of men, for the praises of men, for money, for pleasures, for the things of this world. We say, man, Lord, I'd rather have that than Jesus Christ. And so long as we live in that way, brothers and sisters, we will always struggle on our walks with fulfillment. And we'll struggle on our walks with, with peace and security and joy. Why? Because our greatest glory in life is not God, but created glory. So the second one is, is that in that day... Not only am I going to draw you to myself and you're going to beg for my grace and you're going to cling to me and you're going to love me and you're going to long for me and you're going to mourn as described in Matthew 5, 3, and 4. That'll be characteristic of you. But you're going to feast upon the fountain of life and it's going to cure your sin. It's going to not only justify you, obviously, but it's going to sanctify you. It's going to enable you to grow more and more in your love for the Lord, in your hatred of sin, more and more in your desire not to live in sin, not to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, because you've got living water to drink. That's the idea here. Time's up. I I commend to you Hosea uh, chapter 3. I was going to use that as a closing illustration of exactly what God does in his people's lives, where Hosea takes his, goes to the, to the auction block, auction, and gets his wife back, who is a, a, a Baal priestess who had been used up, and he buys her for less than the price, uh, I mean, really, really low price, and he brings her to his home, and there he loves her and cares for her for the sole purpose of that the son, um, as it says here, afterwards the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Why does God ordain persecution? What is, how does God use persecution to bring you back to him? Can it hurt you? No. But it will hurt the non-believer. Pray for them. But for you, it weans you from the things of this life. And thus, brothers and sisters, in the face 
of this passage that predicts persecution for Jerusalem, which is what we are. I leave you with the words of William Cooper. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Don't fear persecution. Embrace your Lord today, tomorrow, and in and through all, all things. And if the day should come that trial comes to us, our lives, persecution, God will be abundantly present to the presence of his spirit. So don't dread them. Don't fear them. Fresh courage take. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible passage this has been, incredible book this has been for us. As we have studied this message that you have given to your persecuted, nationless people who are part of of your glorious body. God, give us the grace to be encouraged this day. To, Lord, not, not to need persecution, to make us let go of our hand, to open our hands from the things of this world and to cling to Jesus Christ more. Lord, I pray that you would give us a responsive heart this day that we all, today, tomorrow, this coming week, would be found seeking you longing for your grace, longing for Christ, longing to sit at, your, at the foot of your cross, longing, O oh Lord, to give up our sin, to, to, to die to self, to take up Christ, to take up his cross, and, Lord, to fellowship with you and thus follow you. God, do that work of grace from the youngest to the oldest. We pray, O oh Lord, that work of grace would be prompting right now in our hearts through your spirit. As we fellowshiped with you in this text, now we would go to the table of the Lord. Oh God, may that be our prayer. Lord, nothing in my hands I cling, just you. May what we do here in a moment be that which is reality in our lives this coming week, month, year, the rest of our lives. God, may you be that which we hold, you alone. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll go to the table of the Lord.